This essay is from Cinema Year Zero. You can find us at cinemayearzero.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Year Zero Cinema. The Indian epic, Lang in His Own Shadow, by Ben Flanagan. If we're talking penultimate works, the Beatles have Abbey Road and Fritz Lang has the Indian epic. Just like Abbey Road's victory lap gains an intergalactic resonance through its extended length, synth breakdowns and giving Ringo a drum solo, in the Indian epic, Lang returned to German producers to deliver a film on the scale of his silent works, one that crystallises the director's essence in every bloated scene. The Indian epic is a greatest hits album that finds Lang giving viewers pleasure, even while the eye-popping colours and classical staging reveal some of his biggest political problems. By the late 1950s, it was clear that Lang could only be rejuvenated by leaving the American cinema behind him. Throughout the decade, the psychological realism of his Hollywood films had reached new heights. His Emil Zola adaptation Human Desire, 1954, was a zenith of sorts, mapping as it does the eventually murderous desi sexual desires of a working-class couple, wearisome rail yard operator Broderick Crawford and his horny housewife Gloria Graham, onto the urban web of the train track. Yet, the dominant understanding of Lang as a cold, inhumane filmmaker who cares about structure and not individuals holds no water considering his ability to connect directly with unspeakable feelings. Lang had find a, found a way to turn his trademark, a character's glare of horror straight down the camera lens, into a mood across a whole feature. And that camera angle travels to Demi, You Only Live Once and Something Wild are outlaw couple films with enough crossover to warrant their own essay after all, and Barry Jenkins, whose upcoming Colson Whitehead adaptation, The Underground Railroad, concerns tra train tracks linking a, a secret nationwide network. Human desire aside, Lang's American films had also begun to grow repetitive, with tales of femme fatales and wrong men shrinking in scale, ambition and budget from the man who made Metropolis. His While the City Sleeps and Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, both 1956, were the kind of bleak, schematic noirs that detractors, according to Jack Rivette, tar his whole career with. By Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, in which a newspaper man asks himself a legal question about circumstantial evidence that ends up swallowing Dana Andrews and Jonah Fontaine into statutory trap, Lang's vision of the urban environment as a playground for manipulation, conspiracy and thwarted romance had swallowed him into academic parlour games. So Lang went to India to complete a project decades in the making. The Indische Grabmal, 1918, was Thea von Harbaugh's epic novel, where the writer morphed her enthusiasm slash fetishism of Indian culture into a ripping yarn about a German architect enlisted by Maharaja Chandra of Eshnapur into by building a gigantic tomb, only to discover that it is a monument intended to push, punish Chandra's lover, Sita, for her infidelity. Adapting it for the screen, von Harbaugh had partnered with Lang, who had intended to direct the film before being brushed aside for Joe May. The 1921 version is an artefact of Weimar production that displays a bizarre colonialist desire from a nation that had no colonies of its own, particularly after the Great War and the Treaty of Versailles. Evidently, Lang, who split from the Nazi sympathising von Harbaugh in 1933, eventually felt he could have done it better. Lured back to Germany by Arthur Browner, who was attempting to rescue a flailing German film industry by offering appealing budgets and production oversight to those German filmmakers who'd naturalised themselves in Hollywood, including Robert Sidiomak and Gottfried Reinhardt. Lang returned to the epic scale and length of his silent heyday with his two-part reinvention of the von Harbaugh novel, The Tiger of Eshnapur and The Indian Tomb, both 1959. 
a sweeping three-and-a-half-hour epic shot on location in India, with interiors in West Berlin's Spandau Studios. The Indian epic, as the films came to be known, would appear to present a departure from Lang's dissection of the angular nerve centres that make up the urban cityscape. DOP Richard Angst shoots in Falvis Technicolor that gives each section of the frame a dramatically different palette through coloured lenses. Ever the conspiracist, however, Lang cannot help but make the romantic triangle of his story the epicentre for a vast intrigue that travels the entire subcontinent. Despite location shooting, the entire cast is made up of German and American actors in brownface. While this is enough to make the modern viewer gulp, one cannot help but admire the sheer lengths and expense the crew would have gone through to make sure nobody on this Indian set was Indian. Even when making a story ostensibly about another, Lang cannot help but project the German vision of the place. The Tiger of Eshnapur opens with signs of life, a stage ethnography of camels, smiling undernourished children, and desert exotic vistas through which tradesmen travel. Brown-faced Indians can't call a woman in German, to which our architect hero Harold, Paul Hubschmid, like if Gregory Peck's Mengler in 1978's The Boys from Brazil succeeded, responds by lifting the pair up and conking together their heads. Lang's humanism extends to other cultures, but only insofar as they are sexy. Lang casts American Deborah Paget as Seetha, the temple dancer torn between her betrothal to Chandra and attraction to Harold, who fights a tiger and wins twice in the first 19 minutes. Her risque snake dance is probably the Indian tomb's most iconic image. Charming a snake, yep, she whips off her hood to reveal that just a few jewels cover her modesty, delivering an extended and distinctly European-style dance that continues for several minutes before a hilarious cut to Chandra's face, ogling. In the interest of not suggesting that an Indian woman could be an object of a proud German desire, Lang reveals Seether to be Indian-Irish when she strums the folk song The Night Paddy Murphy Died on a banjo. With the small crumbs of personality avoided her, Paget actually does a decent job of communicating Seether's inner desires through glances and smaller gestures. Harold immediately attempts to save her from the fate of marriage to Chandra, offering to take her back to Germany in an echo of Lang's foray into Japanese culture, Harakiri. But Seether feels connected to India and religion through her continued prayer to the statue of a busty, unnamed goddess. Although, she subconsciously links prayer to Harold by having him communicate to her through a platform in the temple visible if one looks up at the statue. Lang connects his threads using talismanic objects. In-house by a river, 1950, Lang's effort at the Southern Gothic, villainous Stephen Byrne, played by Louis Howard, embraces his wife and sees a hairbrush used by the maid he killed. Lang overlays a shot of fish jumping from water over that brush as though sparks have flown out of the object. Byrne jumps out of his skin. Lang's humanism, seen by the tender embrace, is broken by the phantasmagoric properties of an object from the past. Like an inverse Proustian Madeleine, it sends Byrne back into the darkest moments of his life, a moment he's trying to subjugate. Try as he might, his impulses emerge in the form of a story he writes, and in his bitter end, seeing the dead maid float on a curtain that billows in the wing. It strangles him. In the Indian tomb, one glorious Langian moment finds Harold and Seether on the lamb and literally hidden from capture by a spider's web, making her prey to a nearby statue of a buxom goddess. As ever, he asks, who is watching over us? Lang's engagement with spirituality in the Indian epic gives his association of the souls of people with objects and animals a new clarity. When Harold and Seether sit by a pond filled with lily pads looking at their reflections in the water while considering their origins... One cannot help but remember the scene in You Only Live Once when Henry Fonda and Sylvia Sidney's outlaw couple do much the same, even casting themselves as a pair of frogs. In The Tiger of Eshnapur, those objects have a religious element which begs the question of who or what is controlling the strings up there. 
labelling Harold a tiger, Sita says the other tiger is the other India. Harold clearly stands in for globalised, colonial version of the nation as a place you don't even need to be from as long as you understand it. But Lang doesn't define that which must be understood. Chandra sets up the film's central conflict by countering, your people say make yourself at home. I doubt you could hear, you'd need an Indian soul. Lang asks questions of representation that effectively exposes ignorance, befitting of all that brown paint. Treacherous Chandra has invited Harold to design and build his tomb, made from the purest marble, the most precious jewels, jade, alabaster, turquoise, coral, emeralds and rubies. It will be the tomb of my beloved. In a meta twist, Chandra has effectively ceded control of the nation's image to an outsider, and Lang does impose his image. Harold is first tasked with charting the underground tunnels that connect Eshnapur, which Lang uses as an opportunity for him to come across sick lepers kept in a pit underground. The darkest elements of society connect underneath us by a malevolent leader. You know what they say, you can take the Lang out of the Mabuza, etc. Regardless, Lang's filmmaking continues to connect animals, people and buildings. The open question, where do birds fly, where does the wind blow, is matched by Lang with a dissolve to the palace and then to a statue of a peacock. Clearly birds see the fly home to the palace or Indian excellence, the blowing winds being Lang's camera and the audience POV as we move throughout his map. Lang gifts India, or at least a cultural comprehension of India, to his audience. This is particularly clear at Harold's reunion with Siva, which has him search through the city streets for her, in the only scene that I observed containing actual Indian people as extras wandering through a market, manoeuvring the architecture. He becomes one with the space and thus is led back to Siva by her sister Barani, both of them welcoming him as an Indian. Lang may have dressed up his set to look like India, but it's sheer aesthetic. It's no more authentic than the Beatles' own yogic ramblings. The Indian epic is set out of time or space. It's a swashbuckling adventure, but where comparable epics like those of David Lean had some historical basis, von Harbaugh's fiction is more in position of her own impressions of a country she hadn't visited. By the Indian tomb's climactic showdown between Harold and Chandra, Lang seems tired of the pretense. Their shirtless bodies are the same colour, Harold's sweaty and tanned from the location shoot, Chandra's brown makeup seeming to melt off. They look the same. For all of the film's talking machinations, in its emotional climax, Lang returns to his essence. Chandra stares at Seether through her into the camera, spectacle achieved through silence. <laughs>